Welcome to the Society of Pediatric Sedation podcast, a podcast dedicated to those immersed in pediatric sedation. My name is Pradeep Kamat, and I'm an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Pediatric Critical Care Physician at Emory University School of Medicine. Hello, my name is Ann Stormarkin. I am a Professor of Pediatrics and a Critical Care Physician at Case Western Reserve University, Rainbow Baby Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Today's sedation podcast is dedicated to the use of intranasal medications in procedural sedation for children. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Carmen Sultan, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine, the Director of Children's Sedation Services at Eggleston Campus in Atlanta. Dr. Sultan is well-published in the field of pediatric procedural sedation, including a recent paper on the use of intranasal dexmedetomidine published in Pediatric Emergency Care in 2020. This paper uses patient outcomes data from the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium database, the research arm of the Society for Pediatric Sedation. I will now hand it over to Dr. Kamat to present our patient case. Thank you, Dr. Stormorkan. In our case today, we have a five-month-old infant who requires MRI of his brain. The patient is an X32-week premature infant with history of difficult IV access. There is no history of upper respiratory tract infection, no snoring or heart disease in this infant. The MRI is needed for a focal seizure that occurred uh, two weeks ago. Patient does not require an IV as there is no, this is not a, a contrasted MRI. Patient has no allergies to any medications. Dr. Sultan, why do we need intranasal medications in procedural sedation? Well, first, Ann and Pradeep, thank you so much for having me on the SPS podcast today. I'm delighted and excited to be here uh, to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is intranasal medications, paired with another of my favorite topics, which is dexmedetomidine. So intranasal drug delivery is an emerging topic. It's also effective and non-invasive as a first-line method for managing a select group of patients who need short imaging studies. Also, they can be used for other short procedures such as ABR studies, echoes, uh, those are also good options. Intranasal medications are an effective alternative for children who have needle phobias as well, also for patients who are difficult IV sticks. Additionally, intranasal medications are a good option for our patients who have developmental delays or behavioral problems and again, who may present IV problems for our uh, nursing staff. Thank you for that informative introduction. Dr. Sultan, can you briefly explain to our listeners exactly how intranasal medications work? Absolutely, that's a great question. The nasal mucosa is highly vascularized, so the delivery of a thin layer of medication across a broad surface area can result in rapid transmucosal absorption of the medication into the bloodstream and then the cerebral spinal fluid. So the olfactory mucosa is located in the upper nasal cavity, which is just below the cribriform plate of the skull. And it contains olfactory cells, which transverse the cribriform plate and extend up into the cranial cavity. When medication molecules come into contact with this specialized mucosa, they are rapidly transported directly into the brain, which is, skips the blood-brain barrier and achieves very rapid cerebrospinal fluid levels, 
This is often faster than if the drug was administered IV. Transfer of molecules across the brain is referred to as the nose-brain pathway. Also, when drugs are delivered via the intranasal route, they do not undergo hepatic first-pass metabolism, therefore leading to faster and higher drug levels than oral erector medications. Dr. Sultan, in what circumstances would you not use intranasal medications for procedural sedation? So obviously, and probably the most common reason is that if a child needs an IV placed for contrast, then intranasal medications aren't my first line. Also, if a child needs deep sedation for a long procedure, meaning greater than one hour, then intranasal, intranasal medications may be less effective. Additionally, if you find that your patient has nose bleeding or epistaxis or has rhinorrhea with thick secretions or mucus in the nose, then absorption of your intranasal medications may be decreased. I also like to avoid the use of vasoconstrictors, which may decrease the absorption of your intranasal medications. So we talked just a couple of seconds ago how, about how children with developmental delays, often intranasal medications may be a good alternative for them. However, it may be possible that children with autism spectrum disorders may not tolerate the intranasal route. However, using child life resources may increase your success of using intranasal medications. Lastly, very rarely patients with facial trauma or facial, facial fractures, such as basal skull fractures, um, are contraindication to using intranasal medications. Thank you. So getting back to our five-month-old who needs a non-contrasted MRI scan, how would you recommend about sedating this patient? So... First, I cannot emphasize enough the success of intranasal medications such as intranasal dexmedetomidine when you have a multidisciplinary approach. So this includes your child life specialist as well as your entire nursing staff. So with using intranasal dexmedetomidine, I usually start with about two to four micrograms for, per kilogram to start. About 15 minutes after the intranasal dexmedetomidine, I give 0.2 milligrams per kilogram of midazolam, also intranasally. So then I wait five to 10 minutes after that medication is given to start to prepare my patient for their scan. The patient should be bundled or swaddled or placed on a papoose in their position of comfort. After that's all done, I take my patient and I position them on the MRI scanner for their scan. At that point, I place their earplugs, I put them on the monitor, and I place my end title. If I find that they're not comfortable or not well sedated, I may give a second dose of midazolam at 0.2 milligrams per kilogram if needed. Please note that sometimes it takes about five minutes for that second dose of midazolam to kick in. The duration of intranasal dexmedetomidine can be about 45 to 60 minutes in total with this regimen. It's important that you realize that the patient and this process from start to finish cannot be rushed. It's also important that you explain to your team, including the nurses and your parents, that the above process requires patience, 
and it takes time for all the medications to be administered and for the medication to take effect. With intranasal midazolam specifically, the patient may begin to experience some sedative or anxiolytic effect in about five minutes, and the drug may take may reach its peak effect in about 15 to 20 minutes and wear off in about 30 minutes. Dr. Sultan, how would you monitor a patient undergoing uh, intranasal uh, procedural sedation? Well, consistent with the latest American Academy of Pediatri Pediatric Sedation Guidelines, I use a pulse oximeter, an entitled carbon dioxide monitor, and a blood pressure cuff. I will note that hemodynamic effects of dexmedetomidine in the intranasal route are less prominent than if they're given intra intravenously. So I see less bradycardia um, in, in the intranasal route than I see IV. My experience has been that the blood pressure cuff may wake your patient up slightly, just so you know, um, but this tends, again, this tends to be transient and they will go back to sleep. So what is the success rate with the use of intranasal medication in procedural sedation? A recent study by myself and my team using uh, patient data from the Society for Pediatric Sedation, Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, which was published in Pediatric Emergency Care in March of 2020, looked specifically at intranasal dexmedetomidine for MRI sedations. And what we found was an overall failure rate of 11.5%. And how I calculated that was using patients that required intranasal medications and then subsequently needing IV medications. So that's, that was what I consider an IV or an intranasal medication failure. So of the 253 patients in that data set, only 29 required an IV medication as an adjunct. So this is pretty consistent with other reported failure rates um, across the literature looking specifically at intranasal dexmedetomidine. Additionally, a recent paper that was published by Pradeep Kamat and his team, which was in pediatrics in 2020, showed actually an increasing trend of the use of intranasal dexmedetomidine um, for, um, for imaging studies such as MRI scans. That also showed a decreasing trend of medications such as chloral hydrate and pentobarbital. Now, for sedation services or institutions that have less access to short-acting intravenous medications such as propofol or ketamine, some of these institutions may actually still be using pentobarbital and chloral hydrate. However, the sedation failure rate for pentobarbital is actually two to 4%, but this medication also has significant adverse effects such as prolonged recovery time, agitation, vomiting, and apnea and hypoxia. The sedation failure rate for chloral hydrate has been documented to be anywhere from 5% to up to 20%. Additionally, chloral hydrate has sedation side effects such as vomiting and duration of sedation that can last up to four hours. So again, as I mentioned, we're noticing that the trend of using chloral hydrate and pentobarbital is actually being replaced with medications such as intranasal dexmedetomidine. Dr. Sultan, which other medications can be used intranasally for procedural sedation? Fentanyl, ketamine, lorazepam, and midazolam can also be used intranasally as well as dexmedetomidine, as we just discussed. 
Additionally, flumazenil and naloxone can also be used intranasally if there is respiratory depression with midazolam and fentanyl, respectively. Do you have any tips on how to deliver these intranasal medications and optimize their efficacy? Now, that's a great question. Um, so the first step is going to be to use an atomizer device. Um, so you want to position your patient um, in a way that will bring you success. So avoid using the supine positioning if possible. You want to spray away from the septum, which is the area between the nostrils. The maximum volume per nostril is about one cc or one ml. If you can, suction the patient's nose prior to giving the medication so that there's not secretions, blood or mucus obstructing uh, the nose there to decrease your absorption as we talked about before. And don't spray vasoconstrictors in the nose uh, prior to giving your intranasal medications. Last point or last tip is to prime the atomizer prior to giving the medication. Remember that there's dead space in the atomizer itself. So you wanna make sure that you're giving the correct amount of medication prior to giving it. Dr. Sultan, what are our options in case of failure uh, in, with intranasal medications? So if you have an intranasal medication failure, I would consider placing an IV and giving IV sedation. So in my study in pediatrics emergency care that we just talked about, I had about 29 patients that had a documented intranasal medication failure, meaning that they required IV medication to complete their scan. And most of those patients completed their imaging study after an IV was placed and propofol was given. So if a procedure is lengthy, meaning greater than an hour, or if it requires significant immobility, and therefore deep sedation is probably required, then propofol is probably a better option. And likely that's gonna require an IV placement. Dr. Sultan, can you describe any large data set studies that support the successful use of intranasal medications in procedural sedation? Yes, absolutely. So Dr. Dan Z, who is from Columbia, has done quite a few studies looking specifically at the intranasal route of medication delivery. Um, he has looked at intranasal volumes as well as success of intranasal medications for facial lacerations in the emergency setting. Additionally, as we just talked about, uh, my study in pediatric emergency care this year looked specifically at intranasal dexmedetomidine and MRI success. Dr. Sultan, we thank you for your time today. In closing, can you give us some clinical pulse about intranasal medication use in procedural sedation that a, a sedation practitioners can use? Absolutely. The first one is be patient. Dexmedetomidine may take a little bit of time. Um, it can take anywhere from 12 to 15 minutes before you see the sedative effect that you're looking for. So it's important that you don't just give the medication and then start with the imaging study. So it may take some time, but it is successful. So hang in there. Second, you're going to have the best success with intranasal dexmedetomidine if you have a multidisciplinary approach. So utilize everyone in your team. That includes your sedation nurse, the physicians, as well as the child life specialists. Third, 
Learn how to use an atomizer using the correct position also will increase the likelihood that you'll be successful with intranasal dexmedetomidine. Make sure to use both nostrils. And if you can use, um, if you have volumes over 0.3, again, use both nostrils. Lastly, nasal medications are not equivalent to IV dosing. So be sure to check the concentration of the medications and check your dosing prior to giving the medications. You want to minimize volume and maximize concentration. Thank you, Dr. Sultan. Those are some great clinical pearls. And for me, underscore the fact that intranasal medication delivery has an important role in pediatric procedural sedation. Providers need to choose these patients carefully. For example, those who need short imaging studies and do not require deep sedation or an IV for contrast. Additionally, ensuring that the drug is administered using an atomizer, that you have the patient correctly positioned, as well as ensuring that your volume is minimized and your drug concentration is maximized. These are all very important factors for successful sedation. This concludes our episode today on intranasal medications for procedural sedation. We thank Dr. Carmen Sultan for her expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode on procedural sedation. Thank you. I am your host, Pradeep Kamath, along with my co-host, Dr. Ann Stormorkan. 